Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Nicholas Edzer. Now Nicholas is the director and owner of Langdale Landscapes Limited over in Kent and that's a company specialised in the design and building of gardens and patios as well as tree planting and landscaping. Uh, Nick, welcome, great to have you with us on the program today yeah thank you well no it's always uh, always nice to be asked to do these so that's great thank you Absolute pleasure having you, Nick. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, I mean, I always think leadership is always is always a very difficult one to try and explain. Really, I think lots of people have lots of different styles of leadership. Um, I always think, certainly for me, it's always having positive mindset, um, having a strong vision of where you're looking to try and get to um having the personality and the toughness to get there because it's never always easy um you know and i think just inspiring inspiring people that work for you and people around you uh and i think overall just having a complete passion about what you do which i think then you know feeds down and makes people want to you know follow follow what you're trying to do really. and i think they're probably Probably the, the sort of main things that I always try and sort of work to really with, with my leadership style. Mm. And there are a couple of things that you mentioned there about that positive mindset, but also the fact that it's about people around you just as much as yourself as um, a leader as yeah. well. And um, that comes down very much to the kind of culture that a leader instills, doesn't it? It's got to be a culture of positivity, which can really nurture and get the best out of those around them as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, I think positive mindset is probably one of the greatest attributes that a leader can have at all times really I think because you know life is difficult there's challenges coming on all the time and and sometimes you get the feeling that everyone's looking to you for an answer really and I think that's where having the ability to make decisions under pressure and inspire people and be passionate all at the same time is is something that sort of you know can sort of set leaders apart really I suppose uh, and that's seen in all, all walks of life, really, and everything. So. It certainly is, Nick. And you mentioned limitations there as well. And I think for leaders, um, it's also incredibly important, isn't it, that they recognise that not just the people around them are fallible, but also themselves, isn't it? Sometimes for a leader, there is that pressure to sort of make every decision a good decision and to get everything right. But that's not always necessarily the case, is it? Leaders are going to make mistakes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, and I think sometimes that can, again, be a very strong point for a leader is if you can make a decision that's a, a wrong decision and then accepting that it was wrong and, and writing that and, and pushing it forward again. I think, you know, failure is something that we, we always are terrified of, but actually it's where you, where you learn your, your greatest lessons really when, <laughs> when things go wrong. Um, and it's how you come back from that, I suppose. And do you think some emerging leaders, people that are going to be stepping into leadership roles in the future, maybe especially among the younger generation, are actually a little bit afraid of failure a little bit too much? And maybe we should be telling them to embrace that a little bit more and be willing to learn from that. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I, I mean, it's one of the things I learned from a very young age, really. I mean, I've, I've run my own business now since I was sort of in my early 20s. And I think you do fail at things. And I think it's just dusting yourself off and picking yourself up. And, 
And I guess nowadays life is very, very different. You know, it's changed hugely in the last 20 years. And I think probably the, the young, young entrepreneurs of, of, of sort of nowadays um, got a lot more pressure probably because I think there's a lot more public view of everything with social media and things like that. And I think people can perceive um, success very easily, even if it's not always there. So I think there's probably a lot more pressure on young young people these days. Um, I think, you know, if we made a mistake and something went wrong in the early days of my business, no one really knew about it because it wasn't, social media didn't exist. You know, websites were fairly new. Um, so really it was only who knew you, whereas nowadays I think you can be far-reaching around the world with every business these days. Um, so I think that's something that's probably an added pressure, really, whether it's a good thing or not, I don't know. I can certainly see where you're coming from there, Nick. Um, social media and um, the accessibility that people have through that, um, it does ha- certainly have its pitfalls in that sense. But also yeah. at times like this, I mean, times of COVID-19, for example, where everybody's working yeah. from home, it has also got its uses, hasn't it? It enables people to also stay connected and maintain that communication, which is also vital for leaders and their teams as well. Absolutely. I mean, I mean social media is a fantastic tool. Um, we use it a lot in our business. Um, and I think... Yeah, you can you can reach people in their houses, you know, on a on an hourly basis if you so decide. You know, you haven't got to, you know, in the old days of running ads in magazines and newspapers and things. You know, now social media is very instant, um, and it's something that we use as a very powerful tool um, with all of our work because it's such a visual industry that we work in. So I I, I certainly I'm a massive advocate of social media, but it, I think it needs to be used in the right the right way. Absolutely. Um, it's all about, of course, uh, the approach and the strategy of using it. Um, I completely agree with you uh, there, yeah. Nick. Um, we talked um, quite a little bit about um, sort of your approach to leadership and um, sort of your ideal forms of leadership. But what would you say are the um, inspirations or influences behind the way that you lead? Oh, um, yeah, I guess... Um... I guess I'm, I always, I always, I'm a very relaxed leader, I suppose. I'm not one to sort of shout and rant about things, really. I always like to, um, I suppose I'm a casual leader, probably, is probably the way I'd describe myself. I don't overly micromanage people. I always like to let people be guided into decisions rather than being told. Um, and I think, you know, you just need to make sure that they realise that you're there to help them if they need it. And I suppose that, you know, you, you get the respect of people then and then they respect you because I think they ultimately know you're there um, to help with the difficult decisions. But I think on, you know, people should be allowed to make their own decisions to a certain degree and obviously then you just, you know, you just keep an eye on them, I suppose. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's many leaders that I aspire to and look up to really. I think a lot of them are very sporting Sporting leaders from you know from the world of football and things like that, but I think people like Richard Branson, um, you know, I've, I've always very much admired the way he led and sort of started his companies. Um, so yeah, I think you know, I think leadership leadership is something that I think you know I'm I'm very sort of casual at, I suppose, um, and I have a very relaxed view on it. 
that's really interesting, Nick. And of course, Richard Branson's a fantastic example there, but also that style of leadership yeah. you talk about, that casual style of leadership. I think a big part of that is being able to um, allow individuals, especially those are within one's team, to essentially um, take a little bit of leadership on themselves, isn't it? Be independent, yeah. be self-motivated. And that's also Absolutely. really important yeah. in getting the best out of people. Yeah, I think I think you will. You'll, you'll get the best out of your people, I think, if you, um, you know, if you allow them to feel like that they're guiding themselves under supervision, I suppose, um, rather than, you know, sort of approaching a dictatorship where you sort of tell everyone what to do. You almost remove their ability to make decisions for themselves, which um, I think is always where things start to break down. That's my sort of personal view on that, really. Whereas I think if you're just there guiding guiding the uh, guiding the ship I suppose really um, and then you know, letting letting everybody know their jobs and and able to make decisions to the best of their ability mm. um, but in order to lead people in uh, such a way do these individuals that you are leading have to come with a certain self-motivation and a certain hunger to be able to have the aptitude to do things for themselves with that minimal guidance oh I, absolutely they do yes um, and I think you know everyone that we employ within the business um, all has a very similar well they certainly buy into the vision that we have for the company really I suppose um, and I think that's why people want to come and work for us because I think they can see um, you know as a company we have a really good sort of family feel around the company really and everyone feels like they're part of it you know no one feels like they're just part of a big machine they're actually you know they're actually rewarded for what they do and I think they get a lot of um, pleasure out of the work we do and I think that's been reflected in you know in the way we run the business really and everybody's made to feel like they're valued absolutely and it's good to hear that they uh, buy into uh, that ethos um, as well and um, yeah. I ask that question as well because um, albeit we have discussed about leadership being a process and making mistakes and learning but there are some qualities I think that you just have to come with a certain self-motivation and a certain hunger yeah. that has to be there from the off doesn't it absolutely yeah yeah I mean if if people aren't wanting to do I mean if it's just if it's just a job or something like that then obviously um you know, then you're not going to get the best out of those people. Um, and I think, you know, they've got to have a certain amount of passion and drive about them as well. And then I think you can then help to mould them into the people that they that they need to be, really, I suppose. But they need to, as you say, they need to have a bit of, a bit of something there to start with for you to work with. I think that's really, really interesting, Nick. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time today, but before I do let you go, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Langdale Landscapes and what you really hope to yeah. achieve in that time, particularly through the COVID-19 outbreak and out of the other side of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, um, yeah, certainly life's changed beyond all recognition in the last few weeks. And I guess um, looking to the future, I'm very much looking to want you know, this isn't going to last forever. We will come out of this. And it's all about how we pick the business up and keep things moving forward when we come out the other side, really. So um, we're doing a lot of, uh, you know, we, we've been growing the business an awful lot over the last few years. And, I, and I'm still optimistic and hopeful that we can do that, come out the other side of this. I mean, it may be slightly stunted um, as to what we were imagining just a couple of months ago. Um, but I think, you know, having said that, we've got a strong business and I think um, the work that we do is very much sought after by our clients. And I think I think that demand will still be there coming out the other side of this, really. And it's just how we um, how we manage that and uh, and keep things moving forward, really, which 
you know, I'm very optimistic that we will do. Of course, demand is going to be there once um, all of this uh, subsides. And also there are going to be opportunities for business to seize upon as well. And recognising that is going to be hugely important for the success of the country yeah. going forward. I completely agree. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Nick, I have to say, um, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And I think no problem. Be, well, thank you. Yeah, I think it would also be fantastic, Nick, to perhaps um, have you back on in a few months' time just to look at what we've said retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes that you've outlined there have been borne out as well. Um, but for yeah. now, um, thanks so much for coming on today's programme uh, for the benefit of the listeners. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. I've really enjoyed it. Um, coming up next on Great. the programme, um, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up right now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress-Cothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress-Cothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, 
it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eve, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than twenty six. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.